Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home. The place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week, I travel down to America's oldest city, St. Augustine in Florida. If you're wondering about the earliest American history you can find, not to mention the search for the elusive fountain of youth, you're in luck. Well, at least we'll talk about it, but sorry, no fountain. Ponce de Leon couldn't find it, and no one else has either, but... That doesn't stop thousands and thousands of tourists from coming down to see where it might have been. I'll speak with Charles Tingley of the St. Augustine Historical Society to try to separate fact from fiction. 
Then I'll shift gears and try to come up with a definition of terms when it comes to wellness and hotels. With Emlyn Brown. He's the global VP of wellness for Accor Hotels. And finally, an update on some facts and figures about the airline business with proper context supplied by Ned Russell. He's the editor of Airline Weekly at Skift. First up, the search for the fountain of youth with Charles Tingley. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So does it really go back to 1513? Well, maybe. (laughs) That's the way to start the interview. There's a lot of debate as to exactly what happened on Juan Ponce de Leon's 1513 uh, visit to Florida. Because remember, when I was growing up, what did I learn? Uh, I learned about Christopher Columbus. Of course, that was all fake news. And then I learned about Ponce de Leon seeking out the Fountain of Youth right here in in Florida. Well, that may be fake news as well. (laughs) Okay, let's go back to 1513 then. Well, um, our first accounts of his voyage uh, comes from Wanda Herrera's History of the Indies, which was a huge 10-volume set on the entire Spanish uh, conquest of the Americas. And um, he says that um, Juan Ponce de Leon's voyage came uh, to the Florida Peninsula, which he thought was an island, uh, north of Bimini, because he'd been in the Bahamas or the Lucayan Islands. And he came to about this um, latitude. So he was lost too. And um, it appears that Wanda Herrera was referring to logbooks that have since vanished. So people who have tried to recreate Juan Ponce de Leon's voyage from from Puerto Rico through the Bahamas to Florida uh, have not been able to trace it exactly. And there are many uh, people who speculate that he actually landed uh, somewhere near Melbourne Beach, Florida, not St. Augustine. But then there's the, the whole camp of believers in Wanda Herrera's account, which was written about 40, 50 years after uh, 1513. So it's, and it's also brought up when we had the 500th anniversary of his of his voyage a few years ago, uh, that um, the Florida Historical Society, uh, in particular, did not want to refer to it as the discovery of Florida. Um, but they uh, referred to it as his uh, naming of Florida. 
because he came here at the Easter season, which is the Pascua uh, de la Florida in Spanish, uh, the Feast of Flowers, and so thus the name which stuck. And here we are. And here we are. But other than that written record, please tell me there's no fountain of youth. No, I don't think there's a fountain of youth. And if you go to the fountain of youth, look very carefully on the bottles of water that they sell because it says non-potable. Are you serious? I am absolutely serious. <laughs> that's not the fountain of youth. That's fountain of the going to the bathroom. <laughs> well, maybe you, maybe you rub it on. <laughs> and people, they show up, right? Oh, it's been a very popular uh, attraction here in St. Augustine for over a uh, hundred years. And there was actually an earlier uh, incarnation of it uh, in a completely different location, which was called the Ponce de Leon Spring. And it was done by, guess what, a um, real estate promoter trying to promote the neighborhood that he was developing and getting people to uh, ride out to... Um, and see Ponce de Leon Spring at his new Ravenswood uh, subdivision. Uh, this is in the 1880s. Wow. Uh, St. Augustine's been selling itself to the visitors for a very long time. Uh, now, we weren't doing that so much uh, in the colonial time period, but since the Americans took over in 1821, um, more and more visitors every year came to, came to Florida. At first... They were referred to as strangers, and they were mainly coming here for their health because uh, tuberculosis and chronic bronchitis and other lung ailments uh, were horrible in the 19th century. There was very little you could do about it except get to a warmer climate. So many people escaped the New England winters and came to uh, Florida. One of our first examples of that, who left a written record, uh, is uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who came in 1828. For his health. For his health. Wow. Earlier today, I went out to the fort to check out what was left of the fort when, when the Spanish said goodbye in 1821, because that fort had been attacked a couple of times. It had been occupied by the Spanish twice, by the, by the British once. And then in 1821, they said, see you, we're gone. And it was abandoned. No, no, it wasn't abandoned. Uh, it wasn't very well maintained, but uh, it was not abandoned. One has to remember that the, the time periods of Florida and St. Augustine history are different from the time periods that we normally associate with what becomes the 13 colonies that the Brits had north of here, and if you include New Netherlands, uh, New York, in with that. It's very different here because we start much earlier uh, with the settlement being established in 1565 by uh, Pedro Menendez de Aviles, and then that continues until... 17th through those sieges to 1763 when because the British during the Seven Years War had captured Havana Cuba by treaty Florida was ceded to the British so then we have this 20-year British period and Florida maintained a very strong crown loyal presence during those 20 years during the American Revolution. But then guess what? Spain was an ally of the revolutionaries and had captured Pensacola in West Florida. So at the end of the American Revolution, Spain gets Florida back. And then there's this time period, this, which we call the Second Spanish Period, from 1784 to 1821, when Spain again ruled Florida, but 
it was a losing proposition. There were lots of revolutions, there was Indian warfare, and let's face it, the Spanish Empire, because of the Napoleonic conflicts and others, was collapsing. This is the time of the start of the Mexican Revolution and Simon Bolivar in South America. So the Spanish had bigger fish to fry than this little province at the edge of the empire. So they took off. So they left uh, in uh, 1821. And when they left, that's really the start of tourism as we know it. Yes, because um, while there were some travelers from elsewhere, they were mainly, say, scientific expeditions like John and William Bartram or André Michaud, the French botanist, uh, and um, not leisure travel or travel for your health. Of course, what changed all of that was her- was Mr. Flagler. Yes. Um, this tourism struggled along with boarding houses and small hotels in the antebellum years. And then the Civil War comes. And after the Civil War, we really start getting an uptick in tourism with um, the advent of uh, the rise of the middle class, uh, allowing more travel for travel's sake. And we really got to get what might be referred to today as adventure travel because Florida really was a wilderness, a frontier. And so many people who came to Florida uh, not only wanted to see the sites in St. Augustine left over from the Spanish regime, but they would take side excursions, say, up the Oklawaha River to Silver Springs uh, to see the natural wonders of Florida as well. And of course, when Flagler came in, Henry Flagler built the railroad. Yes, he actually acquired a couple of short-line railroads that had already been built in the vicinity, but he changed them to standard gauge. He built the first bridge across the St. John's River, allowing the traveler to get on the train in um, Hoboken, because there were no Hudson River tunnels then, but you could get on at Hoboken and in, in a little, New Jersey. In New Jersey, and a, a little over 40 hours later, um, without changing train cars, you could be in Florida. And to think, we're in Amtrak now, it's about 40 hours. I'm kidding, no, but it could be. I could mean, be. Could be, I know. So that he really started it. Yes, because he made it standard gauge, he built the bridge, and then he continued to push the railroad further and further south. Of course, this is the era when railroads got so much free land from the government for every mile of track laid. So he goes first to Ormond Beach and then to Daytona and then starts establishing fresh new towns uh, further south. Uh, By 1895, he's in Miami. And then the famous story of his Key West extension, which was completed in 1913, about a year before his death. Amazing. I mean, he really opened the door. But it was a combination of the transportation to get here conveniently, as well as him establishing fabulous hotels. Sure, because you have to have, that's how the railroad hotel started. You had to have a place for people to stay when the the train pulled in. Yes. And that's what did it. And that's exactly what you see in Canada, across Canada. That's what you used to see across America. I mean, people would go, would take the train to that train hotel. My thanks to Charles. So what's your definition of wellness? And let's go one step further. What's your definition of wellness at a hotel or resort? Emlyn Brown, who's the global VP of wellness for Accor Hotels. Don't you just love the term VP of wellness? Well, just maybe we can finally define what wellness means at a hotel and what you need to look for. 
Devlin Brown, how are you, sir? I'm very good, thank you. Wonderful to be here, Peter. Thank you so, so much. So now let's talk about the word, the definition of the word wellness, because some hotels will tell you they're, they they have wellness, and what it is, it's uh, you'll get a facial. Mm. That's not really wellness. No, I think I think we define it very simply. The dictionary definition, which is basically wellness, is actions and activities you do to improve your overall well-being. So well-being is an outcome. And wellness is actions and activities that you do to improve that well-being. And that can be many, many forms from meditation to 10,000 steps to your dietary process to facials and spa and fitness and everything else combined. And the wellness journey for anybody now has come so personalized and so individual that we're trying to respond to that by moving wellness outside of the spa into other areas. But then, of course, it becomes a challenge to define it. Since everybody defines it differently. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, I think the, the most important thing to understand, I think, on a simple term is that 80% of our guests within our course, so four out of five of the people crossing a threshold of our hotels, whether it's from an eco-hotel to mid-scale to ultra-luxury, it's taking some sort of forward step every day to improve their well-being. Okay, And our need is to try and respond to that demand by offering opportunities for them to take part in wellness in different forms and formats, but also explore other new opportunities. Uh, And the simplest way of us doing that is through great fitness, great nutrition, great moments of pause and mindfulness within our hotels. But you have to sort of approach it in a holistic way because it can't just be here's the room where we do exercise and here's the menu. They sort of have to sink in. Yeah, look, it's, a very, it's very much about providing opportunity either through people or through facility. I was there in the days of the Jane Fonda room, by the way, when you're knocking the walls down. So it's definitely improved dramatically since then. Um, and I think that the ways that we're tackling it with Anacor and other hotels is through things like nutrition and food and making that really central to the delivery because people's dietary needs are so complex and so varied right now, right? Although, I'm going to give you a devil's advocacy Please. question. People don't really change their lifestyle when they change their location. They think they do, but then they think, okay, I'm, I'm on vacation, so I'll have five pina coladas, and I'll have the extra cheesecake, right? That's okay. I mean, no problem at all, but they'll also... Well, that's a different definition of uh, wellness. True, but the thing... I, I would call that swellness. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're going to try and fight the swellness through a little bit of wellness when you're there as well. I think what people want from a holiday stay now is actually much more uh, complex and complicated. They want the pina colada. They want to have the cheesecake. But they want to do yoga. They want to explore local cultural elements. They want to jam it as much as they possibly can in two now. weeks. Cheesecake yoga. Excellent. I think it's a good idea. We can definitely TM you that. You could sell that. <laughs> I, I know sure you could I sell could. that. I'm sure I could. <laughs> but, you know, the, the idea of a stay within, within a resort, any resort and location, I think is so much more complex what people expect from that resort, right? So they do want to have all well, those different Well, the expectations have changed. Yeah, absolutely. And to what extent, I mean, I, I saw it happen during the pandemic. Not that anybody planned it this mm. way, but people took that time to reassess their own role in life, mm-hmm. their own location in life, mm-hmm. their job, their cost of living, their style of living. We saw the great migration, but along with that came, I want to go somewhere where I can be healthier yep. or breathe. Yeah. Literally. Yeah, literally breathe. Yeah. 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 I think that you know, we call it a super acceleration of well-being. This, this practice and idea was really a movement before the COVID situation. And then now in a post-COVID landscape, people had a couple of things. One, the chance to really reevaluate what's important to them in terms of their own health and well-being. Secondly, to adopt certain habits during that period that they, they could do at home, like home exercise, yoga movement, dietary elements, right? And now it's become a real strong habit within them that they expect to receive and be able to take place when they're actually on holiday. So I think that that's been a, a positive element that's come out of this, which is basically people really understanding that health is wealth and what they want to actually do and achieve while they're going away is to create moments of pause and moments of contemplation and moments of rest uh, in order to go back to their working life. And you mentioned the word rest. 
what's the new big boom right now? Sleep tourism. Absolutely. I mean, people people going on vacation to sleep. Yeah, to really get away from things. And I think that you know this idea of recuperation we're seeing coming into hotel room design in a much stronger way, coming into our spa development design in a much stronger way um, in order to help people recover, right? So, for example, you're seeing spa and wellness locations in hotels adopting a, things like cryotherapy, like IV therapy, all to boost immunity and to create recovery. Rest and sleep is a really, really important part of that because without that, you really can't recover. Just to be clear about this, most of you may not hear the word core and know what I mean. Mm. I mean, it's Fairmont. Give me some of the other brands. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, we're nearly over 40 brands. It includes brands you probably know in the USA, like Fairmont, like Raffles, like Swiss Hotel and Pullman. Um, obviously, a number of new brands for us with our Delano, Mondrian, which is part of our Ennismore group. And we're obviously a global company of over 5,000 properties, many of which you'll know, but particularly in the USA and Canada with the Fairmont brand. Right. And you mentioned the Delano. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody there looks like an escapee from a Robert Palmer video. <laughs> They're all dressed black on black. And every time I walk in, they go, you'd be checking in because mm. you're here. Why? Mm. Very, very stylish. Very there. stylish with properties, yeah. All right. But let's go back to with that many brands. Mm. How can a hotel as large, a hotel group as large as a core, mm. adapt? to so many definitions of wellness? It's a really good question, and it's not the easiest thing to do. But I think that from our approach, we take a, what we call a fundamentals, not fads approach. So really what we're trying to recommend is those practices that really impact people's health and well-being when they're not during a stay. And they're pretty constant. If you think about wellness, it's not a new thing, right? It's been around for thousands of years. You look like traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic practice. People have been looking to improve their health and well-being since the dawn of time. Those are based on five fundamental principles. Nutrition, movement of some kind, what we call spa and leveraging our spa experience, some sort of type of mindfulness and meditational practice, then naturally how we look to design those facilities in order to create a well-being environment for people. And they remain constant through all our brands. Well, then what we do is we turn the volume up or down depending on the demographic, depending on the age profile, depending on the hotel, the location, to create a song. You know, you think that the notes have not changed in music for thousands of years, but you can create many different varied songs from those. And that's pretty much how we approach it. How is this different from, I'm talking about wellness, Mm. from medical tourism? Well, I think the medical tourism is an interesting area, but there you're talking really about me with people doing invasive elements of surgery or looking for more curative elements well, of things? Well, I'm not talking necessarily about somebody okay. going to Malaysia to get a kidney transplant. Okay, yeah. What I'm talking about, or, or, or plastic surgery mm. or anything like that. What I'm talking about is so many hotels that are seeing that have medical facilities at the hotel to test you, ah. to give you a full workup. Yeah. So that when you're staying there for three days, they really let you know how you're doing. Oh, absolutely. Look, there's a number of locations that are doing that really, really well. The diagnostic side of things, because the interest from people is definitely there to understand what's making them tick where they actually sit right now and now with technology and applications we've got available to us the access to that's actually relatively easy even within resort hotels we're able to deliver good diagnostics right to then help us tailor make programs of diet or spa or well-being or fitness to that personal need so at every one of your hotels that practices this you have specialists there it do, will depend on what level we're at a hotel obviously the further up the scale of wellness we go the larger the, the area of that's going to be the more diagnostics you're going to receive but the large majority of our locations we're really talking on the fundamentals of things like nutrition movement movement, meditation and spa experiences. We do have a number of places like our Windsor Park Fairmont, for example, which is a fully fledged destination spa. Where you can definitely take part in those services. Wow. Okay. So now let's shift gears to sustainability. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a vital element of any any corporate and governance right now. And I think that 
within the well-being space, we did a recently did a series called Health to Wealth, which is a podcast series talking all about the ideas of what is well-being in the modern context. And naturally, sustainable planet and well planet, you cannot have well-being without a well planet, right? And these things are all interconnected. Um, we spoke very clearly about some of the areas I think within hotels that are vitally important. Food waste, for example, right, which accounts for what 35% of all food created is thrown away, nearly 10% of all global warming. So these are the areas I think within our industry, and particularly within well-being, we can really tackle and make a big impact on. Well, I remember going back 15 years now, the Fairmont in Arizona was the first one to like recycle the cooking oil. Correct. Yeah, I mean, Fairmont's got an incredible history of sustainable practices. It's a really very strong part of their DNA and now going through a process of reinventing, reinvigorating that within a modern context. But the historical part of Fairmont has always been embedded within environment and sustainability because of the unique locations they have. If you think about places like Lake Louise or Banff or Whistler and the Canadian Rockies and so on, it's been a very fundamental, fundamental part of what they want to do. You know, I'm, I'm going to use my case as an mm-hmm. example. The word wellness for me mm-hmm. is somewhat intimidating. You know, I'll walk into a hotel, yeah. right, that has a wellness program and I'm like, going, you want me to do what? I think I should do this? You know, I mean, how do you get me? Talk about mm-hmm. me. How do you get me into this? I think for us and for me personally, it's really important to democratize wellness, right? And to talk about it in a much more easier to understand way, right? It's quite a complex language in many cases. It's intimidating. And if you think about going into your first yoga class, I've done that. It's not, you know, everyone knows the moves and you don't know the moves. There's many, many ways you can be actually taking part in wellness and just doing it in a simple form. Encouraging steps, making sure people are consuming water, eating nutrition experimenting with things like, like, like vegan food and plant-based food, um, getting the movement in, in, a, in a different way. And they're the small steps people can do to really improve their health and well-being, and we should be encouraging that. And you know what? I agree. I just got, you just got to get me into yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> well, happy to help to support you on that, Peter. No problem. But that means as you're developing this throughout all of your brands... It's available. Absolutely. Look, I think what we're seeing now is this, this ever-increasing demand, particularly from a slightly younger generation coming through, but also from existing luxury profile guests coming in, that they really demand an, uh, a more, a more complicate, complex and more, more varied elements of wellness within their stay. Um, and I think that this is now permeating not just within our luxury brands, but all the way through to our eco brands like Ibis and like Pullman, where you know things like exercise and fitness, for example, is do, being demanded by a younger audience. And the days of Jane Fonda with a wall knocked down are just <laughs> gone, right? We need to be highly inventive and highly creative in our interior designs and equipment to make fitness work. My thanks to Emlyn. In a world of disruption, the airlines seem to fit right in. And riding that journalistic roller coaster is Ned Russell, editor of Airline Weekly at Skift. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Ned, thanks for coming in. Peter, it's a pleasure. 
I mean, we have so much to talk about. So let, let me tee up a couple of things. I mean, in a world of disruption, you are one busy guy because the airlines, first of all, have just come back with a vengeance in terms of their third quarter earnings. Uh, United beat the analyst estimates. Delta did great with an amazing profit. And American had their best third quarter, I think, in history. Um, and the planes are all full and airfares are through the roof. At a time of the year, I mean, here we are, you know, Thanksgiving time, when other than that four-day Thanksgiving period, airfare shouldn't be this high, and yet they are. Absolutely. Well, I mean, what you really highlighted, Peter, is that there is an overwhelming amount of demand for travel right now, and that is really benefiting the airlines because so many people want to want to get out and go somewhere, whether it's visit friends and family or, or travel for business. And the problem is, I mean, it's really, it's a problem... In for travelers is that uh, staffing issues that we saw this summer, um, supply chains at the aircraft manufacturers are really limiting airlines' ability to add back flights as, as fast as people are demanding them. So that's driving the, the record high airfares, and, and they're above 2019 at this point. They are, and they're showing no signs of going down until maybe after like January 5th or 6th when it's traditionally a lower period of travel. But if you are trying to get on an airplane now, I saw an airline fare the other day from New York to Madison, Wisconsin, which should be about 280 bucks round trip for $1,000. And guess what? When I got on the plane, it was full. So somebody's paying. That's, that's crazy money there. But you're right. Somebody's paying. I mean, I looked at taking my family off to Colorado to see the grandparents for Christmas, and it was $1,000 from Washington, D.C. We're going a few weeks earlier in December when it's a bit more reasonable. But like you said, airfares are not cheap. And it's great for airline finances, but it certainly hurts the pockets of anyone who wants to fly. Now, doesn't have the company to pay for it. No kidding. But now at the same time, and I know you've covered this story, we're seeing airlines looking at their domestic route network and slashing it. They're flying about 10% fewer flights today than they did in 2019. But it's not just the, the, the flights that they're slashing, it's the routes that they're slashing. So you're seeing cities like Toledo, Ohio, and uh, Moline, Illinois, and uh, Ithaca, New York, and Islip, Long Island. I can go on. There's so many of them that are either losing a substantial amount of air service or in the case of Toledo, I think they've lost all of it. That's right. Toledo is a sad story. I mean, they've had a, a major airline serving Toledo since, I mean, really since World War II. And American Airlines closed up shop there just uh, in September. And now it's Allegiant Air still flies there, but they're, they're a budget airline. They can get you to Orlando or Las Vegas, but they can't get you Paris or London or New York if you needed to go to business. But you know, what, what really is happening is when the airlines entered the pandemic, they gave staff a lot of voluntary early retirement packages, and a lot of pilots took those. And what they found out was you know, maybe too many pilots took them, and now they've struggled to staff up. Now, you don't find the issues that American United Delta, the mainline uh, operations, but their, their regional affiliates that are the entry level for pilots are really hurting because big guys have been hiring away all their pilots. So that's why you see cities like Toledo, like Ithaca. Ithaca, uh, you know, I went to school there, but it's, it's sad to see losing flights because you don't have the pilots to fly them. And now, you know, if you take a look at history, when the stagecoaches stopped going to certain western towns, they became ghost towns. If you're, if you're the mayor of Toledo, you got a problem because forgetting the fact that your residents can't get home or can't get out, your businesses can't attract business if there's no airlift to bring in the, the buyers. So it's, it's a real 
it's a real issue. And my worry, Ned, is that we may get to a point where we get to, well, I'll use the word that I didn't want to use, but I'll use it anyway, extortion where cities will go to an airline and say, we'll pay you X number of dollars to come here just so we can have service at the most basic level. And you know what? What you're saying is, is I, some airlines are actually already talking about that. They're talking about wanting uh, cities to come and pay them to fly there. So it's, uh, I don't know if I'd go as far as use the word you use, Peter, but that's paradigm that some airlines are talking about. Well, it's already happened in the Caribbean on the island of St. Lucia with American Airlines telling the government there, if you want us to maintain our level of service, which isn't that big, you got to pay us X million dollars. And guess what? The government didn't have a choice because they're so dependent on airlift. I mean, you know, people aren't taking steamships to get to St. Lucia. Uh, that they actually absolutely not. No, they ponied up the money, and once they set that precedent, all the other islands there were at risk of having the same equation. That's exactly what what what's at risk of happening in, in, in smaller cities in the in the U.S. You know, like you mentioned, Toledo, Moline, Bismarck, North Dakota, and you know, all of these places. They might have to, you know, if they want air service, they may have to face that reality that they need to offer some foreign subsidy. And like you said, it sets the precedent, and airlines are going to start demanding it, even when pilots aren't an issue. And let's talk about those pilots, because most of these planes that were used in those markets were like the 50-seat regional jets that were by themselves, in the wake of the pandemic, no longer economically viable uh, in terms of fuel prices and in terms of the cost of operation. Uh, one estimate that I saw said that the plane would have to be full at 97% load factor to break even. That's not a good business to be in. No, uh, I should say those planes have not been that economic for a long time, but airlines contracted them because they provided feed to many of these smaller cities. But yeah, but now with pilot costs going up, uh, fuel prices high, we're seeing a significant number of those 50 seat jets parks and remove from fleets and that's another reason you're seeing small cities lose services airlines don't have the planes the small planes to fly there it's, you know a lot of these places can't support flights on a larger plane so it's it, a lot of moving variables in this in this uh, equation right. and, and, and and those rjs have been parked so they may not fly again absolutely now having said that ned by the way we're talking to ned russell the editor of airline weekly at skift at the same time we're seeing u.s airlines predominantly united at this point, doubling and tripling down on routes overseas. So United right now is making the claim, which they can now justify, that they're the largest transatlantic carrier in the world. More than you know, American, Delta, and British Airways combined. In the last year, they, they, they've inaugurated service to everything from the Azores to the Canary Islands to Croatia to Jordan. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And... They've already announced a 30% increase in flights over the ocean for next year. Well, what I can say, first of all, is they are very confident that demand is going to be strong next year for travel to Europe. I'm not willing to go that far. The economic outlooks are a bit weak. But bringing thoughts to the situation, you know, United is a unique case. When uh, the pandemic hit, American and Delta and British Airways retired a lot of their large jets that they flew across the Atlantic. And United didn't. And at the time, I remember asking them, and they, they kept saying, like, we don't think it's a good idea. We don't think it's a good idea. And now, I mean, it's really paying off for them. They have the plane to fly. And like I said, pilots at United Mainline is not, are not a problem. So they can fly those big planes, the Azores and the Canary Islands and Mallorca, you know, all the places they're adding. 
so it's an interesting dichotomy because the regional side is really pressured. The small cities are pressured, but those international markets are getting a lot of new service on, you said, on United. I know. And they're adding and adding and adding. And it'll be interesting to see this disconnect on domestic routes versus this explosion in the international routes. For sure. I mean, they're leaning to their strength and you know they see the money. Like I said, I'm not as convinced that the economic picture is going to be as rosy as everyone says it's going to be right now next year. And uh, a lot of these schedules that are put in place for next summer, they can get pulled in, you know, cut cut down a little bit before they actually fly. But it, it sounds like it's going to be another double-digit growth year for United, and hopefully they can make money on that. At least they're confident they can. Exactly. Of course, at the same time that the airlines are doing this kind of double-digit growth, their pilots are getting angrier and threatening to strike. We've had American and Southwest already doing informational picketing. And, uh, and then a couple of weeks ago, we had the Delta's union voted by an overwhelming margin. We're talking 97% of those voting voted for the union to authorize a strike. Now, I should say that the fact that they were authorized a strike didn't mean they walked out immediately. But the bottom line is that'll give you an idea where the pilots are at. That's right. And you made a very good point. I keep reminding people that the authorization strike is is there's still a long ways from an actual strike. In the U.S., there's a couple steps in between. You know, if you go back historically, we were talking about pilots at least threatening to strike. You go back to 1992 or 1993 when American Airlines was about to strike with their pilots. It was the U.S. government. Bill Clinton stepped in and on the Railway Labor Act and said, no, you can't. You're going to have to go back into negotiation. And they didn't strike. Look what just recently happened with the trains uh, just a couple of weeks ago where Biden stepped in and said, no, you're going to have to go back to, to negotiations. It's more important for the state, for the United States economically that we keep the trains running, especially the freight trains. And the same, I, I'm assuming, will apply to American, United, and Delta. So when this is going to all happen, I don't know. But we know we have a lot of angry people there who have not had a contract, in one case, with Delta for over six years. That's right. I think you, and you, you really hit the money on the head. There's a lot of pilots that are upset with where pay and working conditions are. And, uh, you know, they've been working hard in these last, especially as demand has come back this summer, and, and they want some improvements there. But it, it is going to be interesting because I like how you mentioned the example of Bill Clinton and American in the 90s. It's, uh, the American is a much larger airline today and much more important economically today than it was in the 1990s. So arguably, it has an even more is an even larger national economic issue. You know, case to be made that pilots should not go on strike. Now, I'm not going to say that that's not going to happen because uh, the <laughs> labor relations work their own way. But it's um, definitely a risk and something that I think a lot of the airlines will be facing next year, 2023. All right. So considering. The assumption, always a dangerous notion, but considering the assumption that there will be contracts signed with Southwest and American and Delta, obviously, which would include retroactive pay increases and new pay increases, where do those costs get handed down? Higher ticket prices? Absolutely. It's all going to come down to, uh, to, to the average flyer in the end. Having said that, when the airlines are slashing the number of their flights and you have every flight full then the law of supply and demand kicks in with even higher fares, regardless of whether the pilots negotiate a new contract. That's right. 
I mean, high demand, low supply, that's what we're seeing. And, and a lot of airlines are forecasting that continue to continue well into 2023. And you mentioned the airfare is potentially getting better in January, but I'm already hearing from a lot of airline executives they expect high airfares summer 2023 as well. So start oh, planning yeah. your trips now. There's probably one little sweet spot between January of 2023 and the middle of May. And after that, all bets are off. Absolutely. So you have, you have any good news, Ned? <laughs> uh, I mean, the good news is we don't have to worry about an airline going bankrupt anytime soon. That's, that's, uh, that's definitely good news. Um, operations have improved. It, after we had the meltdowns in, in the spring and the early summer, airlines have gotten a lot better at getting you where you need to go on time. You know, I've, I've taken a good number of flights the last two weeks, and they've all been on time. So, I mean, that's like, always great. I mean, best trip is a trip where I... I don't remember it, you know, it has no issues. So that's, a, that's something to look forward to. And then the other thing that we're seeing in Europe is airlines and governments actually strongly advising and making it financially worth everybody's while not to fly on short-haul flights, but to take the train. That's right. France signed a very interesting law last year uh, that barred uh, domestic flights on routes where a train can make the trip in two and a half hours. Now, that's only impacted, I think, four or five routes so far, but it, it's clearly a move that a lot of European governments are looking at, especially they've invested in high-speed rail systems to force people onto trains. But you know, if you look at, at Germany's example this summer, a lot of people you know, wanted to take the train, but Deutsche uh, Bahn is not that reliable. So it, it's tough for governments to do this uh, when trains don't arrive on time. So I think that's something that European governments have to keep in mind as they, as they push, uh, push trains more. Unless, of course, if you're flying out of Switzerland, they're always on time. That's so true, like clockwork. Literally clockwork. I mean, if, if the train's going at 8.06, don't show up at 8.06 because half pay through 8.06, they're going to leave. Absolutely. Oh, good luck traveling with a kid through the station. You know, right. they, they don't make for uh, make for speedy speedy trips, but those trains are very reliable. I mean, the the two instances are Switzerland and Japan. They do not mess around on on time performance. And I was on a Japanese train once that was late for five minutes. Every conductor walked through the through the through the trains and apologized. It was unbelievable. Unbelievable. Wow. I know. I mean, so absolutely. So hopefully one of these days we might actually have some semblance of high-speed rail in America, but don't hold your breath. You can thank the freight trains for that. And in the meantime, the real jury being out right now is what are small American communities going to be doing in the year 2023 to be able to compete, to be able to have airlift, or to even be able to attract at a reasonable cost, because somebody's going to pay for it, an airline to fly there, right? That's absolutely right. You know, we're going to be watching the pilot situation closely, watching the supply of planes, see if some of those air service comes back. But, I mean, truth be told, I'm not that optimistic for 2023 that we're going to see a lot of what's been cut come back. We'll see. I'd like to be stand corrected on that. But we'll you see. know what? I would love to see you be stand corrected on that. I hope we're both wrong. 
My thanks to Ned, to Charles, and to Emlyn. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. To hear more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, you know what to do. Just log on to petergreenberg.com. The Ion Travel Podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.